If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 28. Today we'll begin reading in verse 11. Also bookmark Isaiah 6. And we've already been there a couple times today. We'll be going back to Isaiah 6 um, near the end of the sermon. Uh, if you'll be with us next week, we're going to put a, a bow on Acts and finish it out with the, the final two verses. Um, this week, though, we'll begin in verse 11 and read to verse 28. You know, as, as we've traveled with the Apostle Paul on all these missionary journeys, there's a general pattern we've seen. Whenever he would enter a new city, where was the first place he would always go? Was it to a Euro stand in the market? No. Was it the seat of local government? No. Was it to an art gallery or university? No. The first place that Paul always went was a synagogue. He would go and he would find the children of Israel. He would go to that gathering place where his Jewish brothers worshipped and read the Scriptures. And he would go to them and deliver the good news that the long-awaited, promised deliverer and king of God's people had come and triumphed. It's the first thing he did. And today, as we reach the final city that is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, we see Paul do something slightly different. This final city is Rome, and the difference is that he's not able to visit a local synagogue. We'll read of this in just a moment. The reason he's not able to visit is because he is not a free citizen who can travel Rome as he wishes. He's in chains. He is under house arrest. He's not in a Roman prison. He's able to lease a house and he does have some freedoms. He's allowed to have visitors, as we'll see. But there was always a soldier with him. A soldier physically connected to Paul by a chain. I'm not sure of the length, but one end of the chain was attached to Paul and the other was attached to one of the Roman soldiers. And I read that the way this worked was that you had a four-hour shift. When you came on your shift, they would chain you to uh, Paul's chain You would spend four hours with him and then your uh, replacement would come. And so there were six different soldiers who would be chained to the Apostle Paul during a normal day. You know, just what did those guards hear? I mean, we, we can think about some of the greats throughout church history and we can be envious of the time that people spent with them. 
We can think of the students sitting at Martin Luther's dinner table discussing theology. Or the men and women in southern England who received pastoral letters from John Newton. Or those uh, Londoners who got to sit under the Prince of Preachers and hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. We think how wonderful that would have been. How blessed those ears. And here we have the Apostle Paul on a leash locked to a Roman soldier. And those soldiers would have heard every conversation, every sermon, every prayer, every moment of pastoral counsel. They would have been with him while he was writing letters like Philemon and Ephesians. And Philippians and Colossians, they would have been there for all of it. And I can't imagine that Paul would have ignored them. Paul, there's no way he would have snubbed them or pretended as if they weren't there. I'm I'm sure if he had a visitor, he would introduce his visitor. This this is my guard, Joe. He's He's a great guy. Surely he would have prayed with and for those young soldiers. He would have told them that there was only one God. That only way, only one way that you might find peace with him. And it's through repenting of sin and believing in his son. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? But there's hope, friends. Here's our hope. Our hope is found in remembering that Paul and Luther and Newton and Spurgeon. It's not that they've turned to dust and ceased to exist. Their bodies are resting in the grave, but their souls have gone to be with the Lord. They've gone to that place that has been prepared for them. Our hope is that There is life beyond the grave. That as the psalmist put it in Psalm 118, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's our hope. Finally being home, finally being free of sin, and communing with all those who have gone before, recalling to mind and celebrating the Lord's work of grace in our lives. Friends, I would venture to say we do not think about heaven enough. Well, all that just because a soldier was chained to Paul. I'm not going to say too much on Paul's journey to Rome. It's enough to say that after wintering on the island of Malta... Paul makes it without incident to Rome. The winds that had harassed them all the way up to this point are now serving them. Paul will finally make it. And we'll talk about the Roman Christians next week. I'm going to skip over these brothers that Paul meets on the road. I'm going to skip over that this week and I'll come back 
to them next week. But what I'd like to focus on is this final interaction. This interaction that Paul has with his Jewish brothers. And again, this is something that we've seen over and over and over again. But here is the final instance of it recorded in the book of Acts. Paul is showing them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And some are convinced of this and others are not. And we're going to look at his words to them and we're going to look at their response. And there are some important things to see. But first, we'll go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And I want to tell you, this prayer I'm about to recite is not originally mine. It's from some reading I've been doing. It's by a man named Douglas Taylor. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a precious work of yours is the Bible. It is your masterpiece of wisdom and skill. It is more enduring than heaven and earth. The Lord Jesus tells us that it is easier for heaven and earth to cease to exist than for the smallest part of one letter of the original scriptures to be lost or fail of its purpose. It would be easier for the sun and the planets to disintegrate and disappear than for the Bible to err or to let us down. And yet the sharpest minds and brightest intellects in all the world and in all of history have not understood it unless they have humbled themselves and become like meek little children. And at the same time, the simplest and least instructed have understood it enough to see that it is all about Jesus Christ and his work for sinners, and have received light and salvation through its pages. May we see Christ through the pages of Scripture. We need him desperately. We are dying for want of feeding in these green pastures. O Lord, thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for not taking it away from us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin our text in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Batoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about this, came as far as the forum of Appius, and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. 
And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And they appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them that Jesus, uh, about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We've got Paul's final appeal before some of the local Jewish leaders here in Rome, and he begins with his story, why he's there, more importantly, why he is in chains. And we see him assure these Jewish brothers in verse 17, that it is not because he has done anything against their people or the customs of their fathers. And Paul is not being disingenuous here. He is following Jesus Christ, a man who kept the law of Moses perfectly, a man who fulfilled uh, and is the fullness of everything in their temple. He's not being dismissive of their Judaism. He's simply pointing to it ripe and in full flower. And we see their response in verse 21. They said, well, we've heard nothing of any of this. 
No news has come from Jerusalem about you. There could be a whole number of reasons for this, but it might, the most simple reason might be Paul had a hard enough time getting to Rome. Maybe it was simply that they were unable to get news to Rome quicker than Paul was able to reach Rome. I mean, as we've seen, it was a rough time of the year for sailing. Maybe they tried. This is pure speculation. Maybe they tried, but they couldn't beat Paul. Maybe they tried and were shipwrecked also. We have no idea, but news had not reached them of their accusations against Paul. But what had they heard of? We see this in verse 22. They'd heard of this sect, this sect of people who were following Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, we desire to hear what your views are. And Paul would gladly oblige them. In verse 23, we read, When they had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. First thing I want you to notice here, what are the means that Paul uses to attempt to convince these people that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. What does he do? Well, he opens the scriptures. You you remember on Malta, where we were last week, he shakes the poisonous snake off into the fire. He heals Publius' father who was sick with fever and dysentery. He healed those who were on the islands, on the island who had diseases, and he was greatly honored. What does Paul do here? There are no miracles, no speaking in tongues, no prophecy. He'll quote a prophecy, but he doesn't give a prophecy. He does not do anything that is miraculous or extraordinary. He simply takes the Old Testament scriptures, opens them, expounds them, tries to explain and give commentary of how everything in them points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he does. There's no fire that falls from heaven. There's no extraordinary signs. He simply opens the scripture and points to Christ. And I will say that as a minister, that is so encouraging to hear. I don't have to bring any snakes in here and try to handle them. I don't have to attempt to perform a miracle or bring someone up front who needs healing. I don't have to give a prophecy. I don't have to give a special word and predict the future. No. All that is necessary is to open the Scriptures and point to Christ. You know, as Presbyterians, this is something that we refer to as the ordinary means of grace. This is one of the ways in which God grows his people. 
and builds his church. Through the ordinary means of reading and preaching the word and through prayer and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the ordinary means God uses. And Paul opening the law of Moses and the the law of Moses is the Pentateuch, the first five books. And him mentioning the, the law of Moses and the prophets, it reminded me of some words that Jesus himself teaches in Matthew, uh, sorry, not Matthew, Luke 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. And that rich man died apart from the Lord and he found himself in a place of torment. And once he discovers that there is no escape for himself, he pleads with Abraham. And he says, I have five brothers. Go to them and warn them so that they will be kept from joining me in this place of torment. What did Abraham say? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said, the scriptures aren't enough. They need something miraculous. They need someone to rise from the dead. Then they will believe. What was Abraham's response? This is in Luke 16. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, people often read this parable and think that its primary application, its primary teaching is on the afterlife, in heaven and hell. But it's not. The primary teaching of this parable is the sufficiency of Scripture. It's that the Bible is enough. It's it's not the miraculous that convinces us and changes us. I mean, Jesus did miracles all the time. The Pharisees witnessed those miracles, but what did they do? They sought a way to kill him. We don't need... A miracle. We need the Holy Spirit to work through the Word and give us new life. We need Him to open our eyes and our ears to the glory of Christ. That's what we need. And there's a warning here that if we despise the Scriptures, if we believe they aren't enough, if we look elsewhere for extraordinary events and miracles, they will not prove enough and will disappoint you. before we get to their response, there's, there's a couple interesting ending, endings. You remember who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. You remember who wrote the gospel of Luke? Luke. So the gospel is volume one. The Acts is volume two. And do you remember something that happens at the very end of the gospel of Luke? You've got the road to Emmaus. Where two disciples are walking from Jerusalem on a road, and the risen Lord meets them, though they don't recognize him at first. And what does he do? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That's how He ends the Gospel. And we see that He's doing the same thing here in Acts. Paul is doing the exact same thing the Lord Jesus did. And I think that having both books end in this way shows us something. That we too should be those who pour over the scriptures and seek to see more and more how they are all concerning Christ. How from the beginning this was the plan of God that his son would rescue a people. Well, what was their response? Paul opens the scriptures, testifies to the kingdom of God and its king. And we see the same thing that we've seen throughout the entire book of Acts. Some believed and some did not. We see in verse 24, some were convinced by what Paul said but others disbelieved. There were some who heard Paul and believed that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, that he is the meaning and the point of the law and the prophets. They believed. You know, as as we sang earlier, they were upheld, protected, and gathered up. You know, here at, the ends of Act, here at the end of Acts, we see, even before the book ends, that more and more men and women are being brought into this kingdom. But there were others who did not believe. Paul is going to make a statement, and after he makes that statement, they'll leave, and you'll understand more in a second of why they leave. But Paul says something, they leave, and they leave disagreeing among themselves. Now we ended, look uh, look near the end of Acts 28. We ended with verse 28. Do you notice something between verse 28 and verse 30? Something's missing. It's verse 29 that's missing. At least it's missing in my ESV. You might have an older English translation. Maybe yours has verse 29. I, I have a footnote. And uh, the footnote in my Bible says that some of the manuscripts add verse 29. But when you're looking at the older manuscripts of the book of Acts, the consensus is that verse 29 was not originally there. So that's why my ESV skips over it. But verse 29, the verse that was added, essentially says the same thing that verse 25 said. Verse 29 says, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. In verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What did Paul say? What did he say to make them leave, to make them get up and walk out? He quotes Isaiah 6. 
Stay in Acts for just a moment before you turn to Isaiah 6 and just look through these words with me in verse 26 and 27. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now turn with me to Isaiah 6. Earlier in the service, we talked about this well-known beginning in Isaiah 6, where he sees the Lord in the temple, and he sees the angelic creatures attending uh, to the Lord, and night and day they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And uh, Isaiah sees the Lord in his holiness and his response is, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. He, he thinks that he's about to get struck down and reduced to a pile of ashes. But one of the seraphim, in Hebrew that, that literally means burning ones. What a descriptive image. One of the burning ones, one of the seraphim, goes to the altar, takes a pair of tongs, gets a burning coal, touches Isaiah on the mouth and says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. That's how it begins. And then as you keep reading in Isaiah 6, you get to verse 8. And the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. And then the Lord gives him his commission. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's the exact thing that Paul quotes. And Isaiah says, well, how long do you want me to say that? And he says, until everything is laid waste. You see that in verse 11. How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes People far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. Yeah, this, is, this is a word of judgment. They will not see and hear and turn because God has hardened them. And He is coming in judgment. This is a judicial hardening. They have already hardened their hearts and shut their eyes and turned away from God. And his message is, you are going to stay just like you are. I am going to allow you to remain in your hardness of heart in your sin. I'm going to give you over to it. And judgment is coming. And in Isaiah's context, who was that? It was... The Assyrians, the Assyrians who would come down and destroy the northern kingdom 
of Israel. Haul them off. We'd never hear from them again. Then later, the Babylonians would come and they would destroy the temple. They would destroy all of Jerusalem. Haul everyone off into captivity in Babylon. And some would return. That's, that's what's coming. These unbelieving pagan warrior nations would be used by God to judge his people. He said, you have been like a mighty tree, but I will make you a burned over stump. You see why it bothers them when Paul quotes this? Paul is saying that in rejecting Christ, in rejecting the Messiah promised in the Scriptures, you are showing that you're just like your hard-hearted, stiff-necked ancestors in Isaiah's day. And you know, we read this, and it all looks very bleak. It's not the most encouraging message that Isaiah is called to go and proclaim. And he says, how long, Lord, do I have to say this? And he says, until everything is laid waste. And it seems so dark, except for one final line at the very end of chapter 6. It says, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know that this is mentioned elsewhere. Turn ahead a few verses with me to Isaiah 11. Something else I want you to see, and we're about to wrap it up. It appears as though God has completely and finally abandoned his people, but he doesn't. A holy seed is preserved in this burned-over stump. And follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them Cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I'm going to stop there just for time. But I want to ask, who is the Lord speaking of? Who is the holy seed left in the stump? Who is the one who would come from the line of David? Who is this root of Jesse who would transform the world and bring peace to all creation? It's the same person that Paul is speaking of to these Jews in Rome, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why they got up and left. Paul, you're saying that we're the burned over stump, that judgment is coming for us, but that the Lord Jesus is the holy seed. He's the righteous branch. He's the root of Jesse. And we can't accept that, so we're leaving. Well, congregation of Trinity Presbyterian Church, I would ask, what about you? The book of Acts is ending with this one gospel. And it can either be accepted or rejected. There is no neutrality. You hear it. And your heart either becomes softened or hardened. What happens with clay when you do nothing? It hardens. What happens to a boat that you don't paddle? It drifts. There's no neutrality here. Just as this good news was presented to these first century people, the same old story of divine rescue of sinners is before you today. And just as there was a warning against the hard-heartedness in Isaiah 6, there's another warning that is very similar in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 11. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. You know what that's describing? God giving us over to our desires. Those who don't want to hear and see, he will allow them to remain in that state. Not all, uh, we know that there are some hard hearts that he breaks. The Apostle Paul is an obvious example. But there is a warning. A warning not to continue down that road because maybe you reach the point where you've been given over to your sinful desires and you aren't able to turn. Rather, we, it's my prayer, that we plead to the Lord that we might see Christ, that we might see the one spoken of in the scriptures, that we might see the only Savior of sinners, that we would hunger for righteousness, and that the Lord would make you, what, what does it say in uh, Revelation 11? Uh, and the righteous uh, still do right, and the holy still be holy. And may we hunger for righteousness, 
until the Lord makes us righteous? Would we pray for and pursue holiness and long for it until the Lord would give us over to it and say, let him be holy still? Pray that you would be given eyes to see and ears to hear, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, just like the Roman centurion, just like Lydia, the businesswoman, just like the slave girl who was possessed and forced into a life of divination, just like the Philippian jailer. On and on we could go. But this book is ending with a decision, and it's Christ has been set forth over and over and over again. Will you believe? Will you bow the knee? Will you run to him as your only hope, both in this life and in the life to come? Let's pray. Father God, may we see the decision that is before us. Um, a decision to choose life over death, to run to you and not away from you, to soften to your word rather than become more calloused to it. Father, we read these words of judgment from Isaiah, and we confess that if it was not for that holy seed, if it was not for that righteous branch, Father, we would be lost. He is our all. He is our Savior. He is the one in whom we have life. Father, we thank you for the work of your church. We praise you for how it has gone forward and and reached the ends of the earth here in Corinth, Mississippi. Father, would you still use us? Would you use this church? Would you use these people, these individuals? Until uh, until your son returns on that final day. And he, he ushers in the eternal rest that is promised to all those who hide themselves in him. We ask this all in his name. Amen.